What was the most important battle in history? Would you say it was a battle in ancient Rome or ancient Egypt, or perhaps a battle in World War One or Two? What if I told you that the most important battle in history was a battle not fought with swords and spears or guns and tanks, but it was a battle fought with words, the battle for the person of Jesus Christ? Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host. For reading and readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review for us and our salvation: the doctrine of Christ in the early church by Stephen J. Nichols, 176 pages, published by Crossway in August 2007. It's ten dollars and ninety-nine cents in Amazon Kindle, but it's free from Faith Life for January. Now, reading from the author's page in Amazon, Stephen Nichols is the president of Reformation Bible College, chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries, and a Ligonier Ministries teaching fellow. He holds a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He is host of the podcast Five Minutes in Church History and Open Book. He is also the author of more than twenty books, including Beyond the Ninety Five Theses. A time for confidence and R.C. Sproul alive. He is also the co-editor of Crossways Theologians on the Christian Life series. Now today's book for us and our salvation was written in the wake of the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> the novel by Dan Brown. The book that was later adapted into a Tom Hanks movie got many people excited about the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon. The atmosphere was、um, there was this great revelation. A two thousand year old conspiracy suddenly broke, and the true story of Jesus was finally told. Except the book and the movie was truly a fictional story built on creative. All right, it was very creative, but、uh, ultimately unbiblical and unhistorical、uh, plot devices. Which were sold as gospel truth. While it is true that there were disputes on the identity of Jesus, and it was always those disputes were always there from the very beginning when Jesus was around, walking、uh, on the on the sands of the beaches of、uh, the Galilee,、uh, and and in the in the on the roads of uh, Jerusalem, uh, people were always. Asking who was Jesus? Was he who he said he was? And that, and those questions never stopped. It never stopped even until today. But just because something is disputed doesn't mean that it is a fifty-fifty even odds, and that、um, any one could actually be the true story. I mean, if you think about it, that's how the serpent fooled Eve. He did not say that God was a liar. He merely, merely suggested, "Did God really say that?" Now, in order to clear up all these disputes on who Jesus was, Christians, Christian leaders from two thousand years ago, nearly two thousand years ago, they came together. All right, so they came together to try to settle the matter once and for all. Now, they did that in Nicaea, and they gave us the Nicaean Creed. And a couple of、uh, councils later, so there were a couple of more councils.、Um, they later assembled in Chalcedon to give us the Chalcedonian Creed, because they felt, 
as we also do or should do, that it is important to get Jesus right, to get the person of Jesus correctly, for us to teach, for us to adore, for us to worship. So with that, let us now open uh, the book uh, from Stephen uh, Nichols for us and our salvation. This book has a unique format. And I would say that this book is worth buying and reading simply because of the way Nichols has organized the book, the content inside. Now see uh, if you can detect that unique feature that this book offers. The, I'll read the table of contents. It begins with acknowledgements. Then the next one is the introduction. Uh, who do people say that I am? Uh, Christ's crucial question. And then we have the six chapters. Chapter one is, the, in the beginning was the word, Christ, in the early centuries. Chapter two, in their own words, select documents from the early centuries. Uh, chapter three, the triumph of Athanasius, the battle for Christ at Nicaea. Chapter four, in their own words, Select documents from the 4th century. Chapter 5, The Wisdom of Leo the Great, The Battle for Christ at Chalcedon. And chapter 6, In their own words, select documents from the 5th century. And we have an epilogue, Jesus, Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow. Uh, followed by some glossaries, uh, uh, scripture index and so on. Now, the unique feature, uh, I'm sure you have heard it, is that there are entire chapters, three chapters uh, to be exact, dedicated to giving us the original words, the select documents from the, from the early centuries, from the 4th century, from the 5th century. Now, in this age of fake news, where everyone can spin any short video clip or quote to say anything they want, I've become uh, more appreciative, sometimes even demanding it, demanding for it, to see the primary source. I want to read what they wrote and not what you say they wrote. Now, when it comes to the, to the Council of uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon, the, the trouble is, the problem is that we just simply don't have the time. And, if I was to be more honest, don't have the brain <laughs> to gather, filter, and read the primary sources. I mean, in the appendix to this book, Nichols uh, shares some primary sources for further reading. And he recommends you can read the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers. And that is a series which has 14 volumes. And the second series also has 14 volumes. And you can read all 28 volumes <laughs> uh, of these uh, primary sources, primary writings of the Nicene and Chalcedon Council and the various people involved. But we just don't have the time. So instead of doing that, you could read the next best thing. And I would say that this book is the next best thing. Nichols selects and extracts and frames the text in the theological and political context. The politics uh, tells us who are the good and bad emperors, who are the friends, who are the enemies, and who were friends who later became enemies. The theological context tells us the final details of the argument, details that are important but sometimes not easily understood. <laughs> um, so, that is where this book uh, really uh, becomes very helpful. Nichols 
tackles the question of who is Christ. By writing for you, the modern reader, while pointing to the ancient writers. And actually, he goes beyond pointing. As I've told you, half the book, three chapters out of six, are quotes from the ancient writers, selected documents from the early century, uh, 4th centuries, and the 5th century. Now, Nichols has written a book that does not assume that you, the reader, knows the background or have the scholarly interests. For example, let me read what he writes here. I quote, A fundamental doctrine of uh, Platonic, uh, Plato, uh, philosophy conflicts with the doctrine of the incarnation. For Plato, matter is bad, while the ideal is good. The body is bad, while the soul is good and pure. In Greek, a catchy little jingle catches this well. Soma, Toma. Translated, it means body tomb. If they had bumper stickers, this saying would have been on the chariots of the Platonist philosophers. End quote. Soma Toma. Soma Toma. Catchy jingle, isn't it? You will probably remember that phrase. Uh, the body is bad. Uh, Soma Toma, long after this podcast has faded away. Stephen Nichols will later turn his talent of finding catchy little jingles, of turning... Uh, good phrases of uh, bringing something of interest from history in a catchy new way in a very short section uh, with his podcast. If you haven't done so yet, I recommend you listen to Stephen Nichols' Five Minutes in Church History. Uh, if you listen to him before you read this book, you might actually uh, have an interest, something to look forward to uh, when you open the book, right? which is how I felt. Um, I can tell you uh, I tell you this, I tell you this about who he is and how he presents uh, his uh, material because I want to assure you that if you ever wanted to know about the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, the controversies and the creeds for the Trinity and Christ, uh, truly God, truly man, Stephen Nichols is a, is a good guide. He actually knows how to make it interesting and he presents the historical uh, source. And uh, there are other places where you can, uh, Wikipedia or other books, where you can summarize, summarize all, all uh, these uh, controversies, all these uh, uh, arguments. But I think that this book goes a bit beyond a summary. It goes beyond the summary and it, it's, it's something that is valuable because of the primary sources. Now, Stephen Nichols knows that reading the primary source can be intimidating. Every ancient text in this uh, in this uh, book in this in these chapters, they are all preceded by an introduction, and he explains how those introductions work. I quote: "Introductions to these texts provide some information on the context of these selections. Notes are also included to help contemporary readers get a better handle on tricky points in these." ancient texts. These samples are but the tip of the iceberg of the rich literary legacy of the early church. The early fathers went to great lengths to see that the church thought and believed properly about the person of Christ so that, in, so that it in turn accurately and persuasively proclaimed the gospel of Christ. End quote. So you never feel like you're reading someone else's love for ancient word puzzles. They're just twisting words around, turning uh, vowels and consonants and words and whatever it is, and then making a, a big 
a mountain out of a molehill. The way Nichols writes, he always ties it to the importance of, I quote, accurately and persuasively proclaiming the gospel of God, uh, the gospel of Christ. For example, remember Soma Toma? The body is bad, the soul is pure and good. Ignatius has something to say about that. I quote, He, Jesus, was baptized by John, really, and not in appearance. And when he had preached the gospel three years and done signs and wonders, he who was himself the judge was judged by the Jews, falsely so-called, and by Pilate the governor. He was scourged, was smitten on the cheek, was spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He was condemned. He was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination, not in deceit. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead. End quote. So you can see here that uh, there was there something to fight for, that these truths are real. It is not just you believe whatever you believe, I believe what I believe, and let us make peace or something like that. It's not that. It's saying that these things are true and and it's worth uh, declaring. It's worth saying that we, we uh, that our belief must be fought for. So written nearly 2,000 years ago, we can still feel the force of uh, Ignatius's words. Let's hear from another author, uh, Tertullian. Okay, Tertullian. I quote, If the worker were imaginary, the works were imaginary. On this principle too, the sufferings of Christ will be found not to warrant faith in him. Okay, wait now. Huh? For he suffered nothing who did not truly suffer, and a phantom could not truly suffer. God's entire work, therefore, is subverted. Christ's death, wherein lies the whole weight and fruit of the Christian name, is denied, although the apostle asserts it, asserts it so expressly as undoubtedly real, making it the very foundation of the gospel, of our salvation, and of his own preaching, end quote. So you can see here the arguments and, and again, the force, the force of these uh, words that, that should not be summarized. So we say that Tertullian believed that Christ truly uh, died and truly lived. It, it denies the force of the, of the, of the rhetoric, uh, the force of the, of the, of the logic. So I, I love uh, reading these things. Although I must admit, sometimes I have to reread it as I try to uh, grapple with the with the with the way they structure their their thoughts. So we another nice thing about this book is that we don't just read the words of the great defenders of the faith; we also read the words of the heretics. Is it right for us to call them heretics? Maybe they were misunderstood. Not so, because their own words condemn them. Okay, listen to this. This is a letter from Arius to Eusebius of Nicomedia, written around 319 AD. I quote from this letter, To his very dear Lord, the man of God, the faithful and orthodox Eusebius, Arius, unjustly persecuted by Alexander the Pope, on account of that all-conquering truth of which you are also a champion, sends greeting in the Lord. Now, uh, the thing I want to just highlight here is that Arius believes that he was unjustly persecuted. And it makes me wonder uh, who in this world believes that they were justly persecuted. Anyways, that was just the greeting. And this is from the, let, from the hand of Arius to what uh, he calls the man of God, the faithful and orthodox Eusebius. 
Now, a few paragraphs later, Arius writes, and this is the crux of the argument, he writes, I quote, We are persecuted because we say that the sun has a beginning, but that God is without beginning. This is the cause of our persecution, and likewise, because we say that he is of the non-existent. Okay, never mind about the non-existent thing. Uh, the part, did you hear the error? And if you hear it, and the error here is that uh, uh, Christ has a beginning, is it a big deal? Why is everybody getting bent out of shape? Because so what if Christ has a beginning? Does it, does it deny the work of the cross? Does it deny that he died for our sins? Does it deny that uh, we will live again with him? Now, you see, uh, I, Nichols does a fantastic job explaining the importance of these doctrines. And my summary, this, my summary is this. If Jesus had a beginning, then he is not God. He would at most be a demigod, a nearly God nearly infinite but nearly infinite is not infinite as he points out in this book and nearly god is not god and let me jump to the practical implication of this okay so to you maybe it doesn't matter but let me jump to the practical implication if jesus is not god then you should not worship him you should honor him you can honor him but you should not, you cannot worship him because we can only worship God. To worship another who is not God is to commit idolatry. And idolatry, as you and I know, is a sin. So, we, so our worship now is in question. Is Jesus God or not? And Arius, in his own words, has said that the Son has a beginning, therefore, Therefore, he is not God. Now, if you are familiar with apologetics or church history, you would be, I think, familiar with Arius and Athanasius because that famous controversy was settled in Nicaea and it became the formulation of the Nicene Creed where we had the Trinity, the Father, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we could talk about that, uh, but I wanted to talk about something else because uh, something a bit less familiar in contrast to Arius, I think most of us are not as familiar with uh, Apollinarius, Nestorius, or Eutychus. And uh, I was of two minds on which to choose, so let's talk about Nestorius. Okay, let's talk about Nestorius. Um, just so that you hear something that is not so familiar, and you can judge for yourself whether Nichols writes in a way that makes a complicated theology uh, easy to understand. I quote, As Cyril listened to Nestorius, he heard him saying that Christ is two persons, two he's. Uh, what Cyril wanted to hear was that Jesus was one he, one person. Nestorius so stressed the humanity and divinity of Christ that he veered very near to saying that the two natures are so distinct in Christ that Christ is a divided person, a human person and divine person, that Christ is two he's and not merely two natures. Nestorius, Nestorius would even point to specific instances in the Gospels where the human Jesus was present and to other places where the divine Jesus was present. For Nestorius, it's not Jesus Christ is. Instead, it's Jesus Christ are, 
which is both grammatically and theologically incorrect. End quote. Now, before this, I never really understood Nestorianism, but thanks to Nichols, now I do. And so I appreciate uh, how Nichols explains these sometimes subtle differences in a clear manner. And how about you? Do you appreciate uh, people explaining subtle differences? Uh, or do you grow wary at what seems like theologians splitting hairs? And I repeat myself. <laughs> Uh, well, if you feel a bit frustrated, uh, some bishops in the Council of Chalcedon probably felt as you do. They didn't want to hear any more of this. They just wanted to go home. I quote, They had grown weary of the intricacies of debating Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, and Eutychianism. This group simply did not want to engage the matter of relating the two natures of Christ. Instead, all they wanted to do was to reaffirm the Nicene Creed, suspending the discussion of how the two natures come together. The second group disagreed. They saw the dangers in not trying to somehow express, in language true to scripture, how the human and divine natures relate in Christ. If not dealt with decisively, this group argued that even more complex and subtle views would keep popping up. Now was the time to deal with this issue and complete the trajectory started by Athanasius and the Nicene Council by offering a statement of the orthodox view of Christ's humanity and deity. It would take some work, this group acknowledged, but it was well worth the effort. The second group won out over the first and the council pushed on. End quote. And thanks to them, we have the Chalcedonian Creed. We are glad that they pushed on we are glad that the second group persuaded the first group to keep at it. I know you want to go home. I know you don't want to argue about this anymore. Neither do we really want to, but we need to. And thanks to them, thanks to that perseverance, we have this wonderful piece of writing. And I will just read an excerpt, though I do feel tempted to read the whole thing. Uh, this is the Chalcedonian Creed, an excerpt. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus is to us one and the same Son, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. And I skip to the end. Uh, I'll skip to a few uh, sentences later. He is uh, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. And it goes on. And I think this creed and the other creeds are meant to be read out loud. When you read it, uh, if you just read it, it becomes just squiggly lines on paper and you think there's all the same thing, co-essential, self-same, and you just can't make any sense of it. But I believe when we read it out loud, um, it helps to clarify I, I think when, when I read it, and there is a sense of declaring uh, a divine truth to the universe. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. What can be clearer than that? <laughs> and I have not yet mentioned Leo the Great. In this book, we read... Um, 
the letter from Flavian to Leo asking for advice, asking for advice on how to handle all these people, these uh, Apollinarians and or whatever, these uh, controversies. And as we read the reply from Leo to Flavian, this is a seven-page letter which is printed in full in this book. And it's known as the Tome and it shaped the Chalcedonian Creed. And that just reinforces what I've been saying. Because there is a difference, okay? There's a difference between Stephen Nichols telling us, or even me telling you, versus you reading for yourself what Leo the Great wrote and seeing for yourself how familiar the words are that would later appear in the final creed. So you only really appreciated the urgency, the intensity of the moment uh, when you read it for yourself. You have all these emperors, the bishops, and you have words flying around in this uh, battlefield. In fact, uh, I will quote for you at length uh, what Basil of Caesarea wrote. And uh, he was trying to uh, describe the present condition. He writes, See the rival fleets rushing in dread array to the attack. With a burst of uncontrollable fury, they engage and fight it out. Fancy, if you like, the ships driven to and fro by a raging tempest, while, dark, while thick darkness falls from the clouds and blackens all the scenes, so that watchwords are indis indistinguishable in the confusion, and all distinction between friend and foe is lost. To fill up the details of the imaginary picture, Suppose the sea swollen with billows and rolled up from the deep while a vehement uh, torrent of rain pours down from the clouds and the terrible waves rise high. From every quarter of heaven, the winds beat upon one point where both the fleets are dashed one against the other. Of the combatants, some are turning traitors, some are deserting in the very thick of the battle, some have at one and the same moment to urge on their boats all beaten by the gale, and to advance against their assailants. Jealousy of authority and the lust of individual mastery splits the sailors into parties, which deal mutual death to one another. End quote. There is more. He wrote more. Um, but I probably read uh, too much already. But it's, again, these are, this is not a scene from uh, what Lord of the Rings or from a, uh, from a naval battle, a master and commander. This is a description by a theologian on, on the controversies uh, regarding the person of Christ. So the confusion, the darkness, the assailants, the, the zeal. So, um, I, can, I can say more, but I just want to just quickly talk about two more reasons why I think more Christians should read this book or read on this topic. Um, especially if you are a nice Christian, the type of Christian who loves peace, 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 and at any cost. Uh, for one thing, the book will impress upon you the need for truth and the willingness to fight for it. Um, this is especially true in the life of Athanasius. And if you want the life of Athanasius, you can read a short biography in John Piper's 27 Servants of Sovereign Joy, a book I reviewed two episodes ago. But what Nichols' book offers over Piper's book is the study on the controversies themselves in the theological and 
historical context. Okay, the historical context. Um, because I'm not sure whether I mentioned this just now, but uh, uh, Stephen Nichols is a is a Christian historian, a church historian. So um, that's his background. So what I get from the book is, and what I wish more people would know is this: any one of us can be a heretic. Meaning, it doesn't matter how nice you are, how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how much you love God and how much you love men. You and I can still be a heretic because we believe in the wrong things about God. So, if you believe that Jesus had a beginning, therefore Jesus is not God, then you are a heretic in the eyes of Athanasius, the Council of Nicaea, and the churches today. Now, if now since I'm sure if you're listening to this, you don't really believe that, or if you do, then maybe you want to read this book. Um, it, but is, then it poses the question, is it possible that you and I are heretics in a belief that we currently hold, that maybe it's not on Christology, maybe it's not on, on uh, the truly God, truly man, on whether the Trinity, Jesus, uh, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe our heresy is not in these doctrines. Now, I say this not to drive fear and doubt into your heart, but to drive you and I both to the Bible to show that it is necessary, it is critically important to constantly check whether our faith, our convictions corresponds to the truth revealed in Scripture. Because I think that many people just take too lightly the idea that the person next to you could actually be espousing uh, false teaching. We have too much confidence in ourselves or maybe the, too much confidence on the people we look up to. So we need to go back to Scripture. Regardless of what you believe, of yourself, of your church, of your pastors, I want you to know that there are false teachings out there. False teachers, false teachings, and the heresies that Nicaea and Chalcedon settled were never ever settled. The heretical talks have still spread like gangrene until today. In the epilogue titled Jesus, Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow, Nichols offers a sobering summary of what has happened since those early church times. And he tells us frankly, he warns us that the church is always one generation away from getting it wrong, from taking a misstep. And if you need a book to make that point clear, today's book is as good a book as any for us and our salvation. This is a Reading and Reader's Review of for Us and Our Salvation, The Doctrine of Christ in the Early Church by Stephen J. Nichols. 176 pages published by Crossway in August 2007. It's $10.99 in Amazon Kindle, but it's free from Faith Life for January. The next review will be on the free book from Logos, and that is After God's Own Heart, The Gospel According to David by Mark J. Boda. This book is a... Uh, it's a one volume from the Gospel According to the Old Testament series. Now, this free book offer will end with January. And January is ending very soon. So if there is even the slightest chance that you might read this book or refer to it, then just get it. And God willing, after a week from now, 
you can listen to my review to know whether the book was worth that one click of the button. It's really only just one click away from being yours. So until then, bye-bye.